This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. We're doing uh, Igris Moshe, Eben Ezer, Chelek Aleph Simen Membet, Elchizah Truva, dated Tezayan Marcheshvan Tuf Shin Chet, so we're 57 away, we're 1947, um, we're after World War II, Rav Moshe is in America, and what he says is that he's been shown a Truva by, um, not, he hasn't seen him directly, but he's been shown a Truva by Rav Shlomo David Kahana. Uh, Rav Shlomo David Kahana was the Rav of Warsaw before the war, then he became the Rav of the Rova Yehudi in Yerushalayim until it was lost. Um, and he was very involved in um, in Aguna issues both after World War One and World War Two. So Rav Moshe was shown this tshuva um, regarding women who um, right, whose husband is certainly dead. Um, but the question is whether her husband uh, they, they had no children. The question is whether her husband uh, her husband had no children. So the question is whether her husband has a surviving brother. Uh, he has not been heard of for a long time. Obviously, we're uh, post-World War II, so presumably he disappeared uh, in the Shoah, and the question is whether the woman is allowed to remarry. So Rav Kana wrote a chachuva, uh, which we don't have, at least I have not so far found it, um, permitting the woman, and Rav Moshe says about this, your chuva is dear uh, to us. It's interesting, I don't know Rav Moshe always talks about in in uh, third person, uh, in plural, uh, but here he does. Uh, it feels to me like a um, like this is a deliberate move to elevated rhetoric, although I'm not sure. Although there are some things to say, uh, right? Some some things to point about certain points. But if you actually read the truth, you'll discover that it's not that Rav Moshe has some things to say about certain points. Is that he thinks that the truth is out and out wrong, um, tend, leading to um, uh, toward the end of his. Um, at the end of his uh, discussion of it, um, where he says, right, our catchphrase, and this certainly cannot be um, cannot be said at all. And uh, earlier, he makes a halakha lemaisa claim, which is really uh, quite striking. He says, right? And you can't rely on this, even makam igun, right? So that's a pretty strong uh, claim, right? So all the way through, Rav Moshe says that this is... Um, his disagreement with the Rav Kahana is not, uh, uh, you know, it's not going to end up with an Elu Elu Divrei Elu Kim Chayim. It's not, uh, you know, I think there's some weaknesses in your argument. The argument is basically plausible. He rejects the argument entirely. Now, there are a number of things that interest us about. First of all, the Rav Moshe seems to be going out of his way to be respectful even while rejecting entirely. Uh, now, that may be because he doesn't know Rav Kahana, um, or it may be because he really does respect Rav Kahana. Um, but the vehemence is really quite startling, especially the vehemence against somebody who's being Matir uh, in Aguna. So I'm going to um, you know, play spoiler here and say at the end of the day, uh, Rav Moshe rejects the argument, but comes up with models of arguments that he's quite confident would resolve this case and others like it. And this illustrates a principle that I've stated on my own, but then I found uh, late 19th century, I forget exactly whom, uh, articulating this very explicitly, which is that if one writes a uh, truva attacking a heter uh, agunos that has a chance of succeeding um, socially, 
then um, then you have to have a better heter in mind. You can't say, I reject your I reject your arguments which you intend sincerely, uh, and that have some chance of actually freeing the woman, um, and now she's stuck because I reject because I reject your arguments. Uh, so Rambam says, I reject your arguments, but I have a better arguments. Okay, so we'll see his at the end of the tshuva. So now the question is, but why is he so vehement um, against this argument? What is the argument against which he is uh, so vehement? So if you look at the actual text of Rav Moshe's tshuva, uh, he says it about something that seems to be a very um, narrow point in the argument. Right? What he says, uh, what he says is, that Tosfos would hold that we treat this as a subject, right? So it sounds like his Lonitan Lehamer is narrowly within Tosfos, but I think if you read the um, if you read the context of the Tshuva, you'll see that this is just his summary of um, what he believes is you know that this is just the the build up after his point by point rejection at every stage of this kind of argument. At the end, he says, right? So Lonitan Lehamer called the Tosfos Yisbruch Nidon Kesafek Hefech Harahipoch Hamevurer Umefurash Bechol Makom. Right, so he says that reading Tosos this way would be reading Tosos as against what is obvious everywhere, meaning that it would be obvious in, right, that if you suggested that any Rishon read it this way, it would be equally obvious um, and that what you were saying was completely unfit uh, to be said. So what is the fundamental argument of Rav Kahana that Rav Moshe objects to so strongly? Uh, so the answer is that Rav Kahana, Rav Kahana takes the Gemara on Gittin Daf Chochesam and Aleph, uh, get in 28a, in which Rami uh, Abaya the Rabbah, Abaya posed a contradiction to Rabbah. We have a Mishnah which says somebody who, maybe get a Shliach, brings a get, agent brings a get, and he leaves the uh, the husband who authorized the get uh, elderly or ill. He can still give the get to the uh, to the wife on the presumption that the husband is alive, even though the husband was elderly or ill. And the contradiction Abaya says is. We have a case which says, um, If a coin says to uh, t- says to his wife, "This is your get in hour um, before before I die," so then she immediately can't eat truma because maybe he's going to die um, an hour from now. So there seems to be a fundamental contradiction as to whether um, not in the presence of a person, although the coin case is more complicated because we're really worried about uh, what's going to happen an hour from now, but not in, not in the presence of, whether not in the presence of a person, we assume that they have continued living or not. Um, so, Rabba's response to Abai is, Truma agitin karames? Truma efsher get lo efsher. Right. So, Rabba's response to Abai is that there isn't really a comparison between the case of Gittin and the case of Truma, because in the case of Truma, it's not impossible to be to be worried about the issue of whether the husband is dead, we can do right. Nothing. There are no imp- impossible results um, coming out of that because, as Rashi says, truma efsher leos nizonis bechulin. Okay, so if she can't eat truma because maybe she's not married to this coin, so she can eat chulin. So she's not going to starve. Get lo efsher, Rashi says lemechash lemisa. In terms, in terms of the question of whether she's um, divorced, uh, in the case where the husband sends the get from elsewhere. It's not possible to be concerned lest he die. Because if you were uh, to be concerned about that, then nobody could send a, a get by agency, and then we'd have many a good note, as we mentioned, because that would mean that husbands who were too far away to come back uh, would not be able to divorce their wives. Um, and it's treated as a, a, a halachic impossibility that we could create a situation in which there would be lots of a good note. Okay, um, 
Now, Rav Kana takes this Gemara and he adds one uh, one step to it. The Gemara in Chulin, uh, 11b to 12a, um, raises the question of how we can ever eat a... Um, how we can ever eat meat, because how do you know the shechita was kosher? Maybe at the point where the where the knife um, cut the neck of the animal, there was a prior hole that made it a trefa. Um, so the Gemara says, you know what, right? And what do we do about this? I said normally we we we, right, we, we go by rov, okay. But according to Rav Meir, the Gemara says, who is chayesh lemiuta, Rav Meir who thinks that we take into account uh, minorities and doesn't just rely on rov. So how does he ever eat meat? So, the answer the Gemara ends up saying we, we, at the end of the Shaklavataria is that there's a difference because Rav Meir only is Chayesh from Yutah where there's a possibility that you could ever eliminate doubt. That's what the Gemara calls Efshir, that you could have a situation which was definite. But here, the low Efshir, there's no way you, could, you can't imagine a circumstance uh, in, which the, um, in which there was no suffix. There's always a suffix that there was a, uh, that there was a trefa at that point. Again, there are people who, can, who imagine cases where you could do it, just as when we have raised the same question regarding uh, whether you can kill somebody for murder because maybe the person they murdered was a, was a trefa. But we're get, the, I think that the simple shot of the sugya is the Gemara claims that it's a, it's a uh, practically so unlikely as to be impossible. So when right, there is practically no possibility of certainty, Rav Meir agrees not to be choshish lemiuta. Now, that use of Esher and Lo Esher, right, whether it's whether a case like this could occur or not occur is not obviously the same as our case in Gittin, but the distinction is whether we could tolerate the consequences uh, of being concerned for minorities or not, right? Whether we said we can tolerate having to feed this woman only uh, only uh, chulin, but we can't tolerate having lots of women be agunot. But Rav Kahana's um, suggestion was, which is you know, obviously not implausible at all, that we connect these Gemaras, and therefore we're going to claim that um, Rabba's answer to Abaye and Gittin, which says that we dis- that the distinction between uh, Truma and Gittin in terms of whether we're concerned that a person who last at last last known was alive remains alive works even according to Rabbi Meir. And now Rav Kana says, well, let's see. Rav Meir is Chayesh Lemiuta. To be Chayesh Lemiuta, that means that you think this is not 100%. There's still an uncertainty here. So now you're telling... Now, why is it that we allowed the get to be given, even though maybe he's dead. The answer is we have a, I'll call a cheskas chayim. There's a chazaka, uh, right, a legal presumption, that a person who was alive remains alive. So Rav Kana says, aha. But since the Gemara thinks that in principle, Rav Meir would not go along with this chazaka, it's only because it's impossible, we see that this cheskas chayim is not a certainty, it's only a probability. Uh, right, there's, right, there's still some doubt. Now, why does Rav Kana want to do this? So the answer is Rav Kana wants to do this because in the case he's talking about, um, it is to the woman's... Right, in the case in the Gemara, it's to the woman's advantage that we presume the person is still alive because that's why we can give her the get. But in the case we're talking about, where a Yavim has disappeared, it's to the woman's disadvantage if we presume, right, if we presume the Yavim is still alive uh, but if we took that as a certainty, then it would be very, very difficult to come up with counter uh, evidence, because we obviously don't have witnesses. It would be very difficult to come up with counter witnesses against a certainty that he's still alive. So Rav Kana's first and very important halachic move is to say, no, the fact that this Chiyavim was seen alive does not create a certainty that he's still alive. It only creates a probability, 
and that makes it right. That probability is not treated as a certainty, and that makes it much easier for him to go ahead and be matir this aguna. Now, Rav Moshe takes down um, every, every, every everything that he cites in Rav Kana's evidence piece by piece. But at the end of the day, I think it's pretty clear that his objection is not to the evidence. His objection is that this is against uh, This is against something which is obvious everywhere. Now, where is it obvious to Rav Moshe that this is wrong? I think that the, what's wrong, if, that um, what makes it obvious to him is Gemara Kedushin Peim and Aleph, where um, Reish Lakish, um, sorry, where Rav uh, Rav Chia Barabba says, "Name Rav Yochanan, Malkin Allah Chazakos, Soklin Vesurfin Allah Chazakos." So, um, right? So, Soklin Allah Chazakos means that we kill people, uh, even though all we have is a Chazaka. So, Rav Moshe says, if we kill people, even though uh, all we have is a Chazaka, it's obvious that a Chazaka is not treated simply as a probability, um, but actually as a certainty. Now, we have to be very careful here. Rav Moshe doesn't mean that it is a certainty. He doesn't mean that it would be falsified by a contrary case. What he means is that halachically we treat it as a uh, as a certainty, whereas Rav Kahana is treating it as a um, as a suffix. We may see in some later trivia that Rav Moshe nuances this in uh, in interesting ways. Rav Moshe is willing to argue that there's a difference between a legal certainty and a right and a factual certainty, and they're actually not committed to this. But that's the underlying. Um, that's the underlying point. Um, okay, so we understand why Rav Moshe thinks it's wrong. That doesn't quite tell us why he uses this uh, very strong language of this cannot be said at all, especially in the context of um, of a heteragunot. Um, and presumably the kind, the kind of argument that Rav Kana had used um, not infrequently, and Rav Kana again was very active uh, in being matiragunot. Um, so I have uh, two possibilities. But I think that this is probably an issue that we will return to uh, in the course of this, uh, possibly even of this series of Bonitana and Merklau, and certainly if we extend it in the context of a broader discussion of uh, of, of uh, Igris Moshe and the Art of Psak. So one answer, which is a sort of a little bit of, uh, I don't know how, I don't know how how seriously to take it, but let's say it this way: um, one of the issues that we've noted in previous episodes is that. Early on is a phrase that we suggested Rav Moshe uses and actually picked up from an ongoing uh, correspondence with his uncle, Rabbi Kantrovitz. So it turns out that one of the major arguments that and you can find this in many Chuvot Rav Moshe back and forth to Rav Kantrovitz, one of their fundamental arguments was about the nature of Chazaka, uh, whether Chazaka was treated as a vali or as a suffix. So it could be that Rav Kantrovitz was sort of a trigger this is just one of those old arguments in which Rav Moshe used the language and here is Rav Kana re- resurrecting Rav Kantrovitz's argument that he thought he had, perhaps he had put to bed in, in, in Europe many years earlier um, so actually this is not um, this is one of those things which is not so revelatory of you know, the importance of the arguments of Rav Moshe it's just that it took him back to, uh, to his Luban days um, but what I would prefer to say uh, and this is part of, in general, an argument that's not going to be in this series, but that I hope at some point we'll be able to discuss. I think that some of Rav Moshe's most fundamental ideas, the ones he's really committed to, uh, are formed in Luban. Um, and I don't know how many of his um, 
you know, I don't, you know there's some people who write you know like people say about mathematicians or scientists uh, certainly Rabbanim who form you know key shita when they're young and spend the rest of their life playing them out uh, I don't know how true that is Ravosha but I think that they're it's very rare that he changes his mind is my sense certainly um, and he you know he looks for every opportunity to decide cases on the basis of principles worked out still in uh, in Lubanan because our documentation from Lubanan is so sparse it's hard to know um, in many of his cases where what com- what co- you know that it happens so often with things we know about we might argue it happens a lot more with things we don't know about because the Luban stuff is lost uh, so I think that uh, this is a very broad thesis that an enormous amount of Moshe's jurisprudence is built on the uh, manipulation, but I don't mean that in a um, in a you know, in a, in a um, lack of integrity sense, but on the use of um, the very very skilled use of categories of evidence moving between legal and um, legal and actual. And my suspicion is that there are many heterim that Rav Moshe issued that are built off treating chazak you know, for agunos that are built off treating chazakos as uh, as vada, as we saw in an early tshuva uh, about the question of the, whether the chazaka that a, a woman would not um, would not claim that her husband was dead uh, without without adequate evidence. Um, where Rav Moshe said that you you, right, you can't question that chazak at all, and it's absolute, and you have to allow women <coughs> to marry on that basis right away. So I think that um, while appreciating that Rav Kahana. Uh, saw this principle as a, as a major heter, accepting that principle would have <coughs> greatly limited Rav Moshe's own jurisprudence, and I think that's probably what his uh, resistance to Rav Kahana's argument is. And that's you know that by now we're now, we're in 1947. By now he's probably issued any number of heterim um, grounded in the in his rejection of a contributor's original argument, uh, which are which are right, many heterim which are based on the principle that chazakos are absolute. <coughs> and um, and so Rav, Rav Kana's evidence, Rav Kana's argument is a direct threat to him. In the end, though, uh, I think that Rav Moshe probably would not have said anything if he had not been confident that, because uh, right, remember, he's proactively writing to Rav Kana. Um, if he had not been certain that there were other ways being mocked the women, right? So here, toward the end of the trivia, he says, Sofdavar, and the end of the matter is, any royal aniyastati davar royally smokalav, I see nothing in my humble opinion, that is worth relying on, even though this missing brother-in-law uh, right, has not been heard from for a long time. Okay, right, so that's his utter rejection of Rav Kahana's basis. But then he says, All this is only if we know that the Yavam was in places where they were peaceful. But if we know that the Yavam was in a place where there was, right, where the Holocaust reached, where most people were killed, obviously, we should, right, in this case of Yavam, we can just follow a rove, because we haven't found a claim that they don't rely on rove uh, in the case of Yavam. Uh, right, the Chol right, and certainly in the places where only a few people were left, there's even more than a rove. Uh, so where, why should we be machmir to require more than rove in a case of Yavam, right? So he thinks that Afghan has had there is too fa- right? It's fancy, wrong, and utterly unnecessary, right? Because we th- you think we can just be matir on the basis of rove and it's the Holocaust. What are the odds that the person was always in a safe place and then completely disappeared? 
And he says, if the suffix the kukli of them, yesh lo ulayl hatir gam kishlo yadu ebeis of makom haya. Maybe if we're not sure she's a kukli of them, we can just find one other doubt. Then we can say, well, we're, you know what? And we're also not sure whether he was in a dangerous place or not. But these two svekos are enough, are enough together, uh, right? And he says so now he says right. You can see that his his hetir is much broader. But he says like many of the chumras that we say about Ashes ish, such as Mayim she'en lam so famously right where the where her husband disappears in the. Um, Disappears in the, in the ocean. We don't simply don't say these things um, uh, by Yavam um, because we can say by Yavam, right? There's no xeros. There's just reality, and reality is that nowadays people who disappear for a long time, uh, they really um, they really are dead because they have so many so many occasions to contact people, and especially if you have relatives in America, nobody's going to not not find their relatives in America because relatives in America are really uh, are really are really important. And the Gemara says over there it needed a kalo the lepasik shemes, but right in the case in the quote from the Trimazadeshim, we don't need that now. Um, okay, right. My my point is right. We're not going to do that in depth. It deserves its own uh, its own uh, reading on its own. My point is that Ramosha actually has right, that. I think Chas V'Shalom that Ramosha would so strongly critique a tshuva that was Mati Ragunos from a figure uh, who really had the capacity to carry it off. Unless he was sure that he even brought her heterim, and that I think you know is why he's so careful to express at the beginning his appreciation, even though he's being very strongly rejecting. I think he doesn't want to diminish Rav Kahana's standing. He wants Rav Kahana to be able to be matir further agunos. It's just this argument, he, Rav Kahana, which he thinks is an unnecessary um, kula, which is maybe lide chumra in many other cases, and that's why I think he responds so strongly, and. Now it may be that in Rav Kahana's own uh, jurisprudence, uh, where this is the way he builds a term, he doesn't build a term the way Rav Moshe does, so it doesn't have these implications at all. Uh, but since Rav Moshe, at this point in his life, has been giving uh, has been giving a term for quite some time, uh, so so I think that this is uh, this has become a bedrock of his of his talk, and that's why he has to say Lonitan uh, Lehamirklaw. Thank you, and we'll see you with episode eight soon. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.